Good morning, First Baptist Church of Gray Gables. Hope you're all having a wonderful, wonderful week. Uh, we miss you dearly. For those of you who are unable to attend because of the pandemic, we miss you. Um, and we're glad that you're tuned in this Sunday morning uh, to continue in our series in First Thessalonians. So go ahead and turn there in chapter 1. We're going to look at the end of verse uh, 10 this morning, but we're going to read verses 9 and 10 in a sermon entitled, God's loving wrath. God's loving wrath. Let's read these verses together, starting in verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, Lord, I am, uh, Lord, have been this week inclined to think that no man is fully equipped to preach on the topic of your wrath, for it is a, um, it's a weighty thing to consider. Lord, I ask for an extra helping of grace this morning through this text as I bring it before. Um, Lord, all the labor that I've gone into this week, Lord, I pray that you would bless it. I pray that the Holy Spirit, having been a part um, of that work already, would now work mightily among us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to help us rightly understand. Father, Please enlarge our understanding of what it means that you are a God of wrath. Help us, Lord, to respond rightly to that truth. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So preaching on God's wrath is not obviously a topic that a preacher commonly chooses because it's not really a popular topic to preach about, right? Well, uh, especially in our day and age, it's not popular. That's part of the reason that this church is committed to expository preaching, because when you come to a text, you don't get to choose what you preach on. The text chooses it for you. And so this morning, we find ourselves dealing with the second half of 1 Thessalonians 10, specifically that portion, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of to come. If we're going to understand this particular text, then we have to understand this wrath, what that wrath is, that wrath that is coming. Uh, George Herbert once wrote this, throw away thy rod, throw away thy wrath. Oh my God, take the gentle path. It's a beautiful sentiment, but I believe it misses what God's wrath actually is. So what is the wrath of God? What is it that Paul was writing about here in our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10? Well, I can offer a simple definition for us just to get us started. Really, uh, it's God's holy indignation against sin. If we had to define what God's wrath is, a simple definition would be God's holy indignation against sin. We'll expand that a little later on in our sermon. Uh, as Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines it, it can also be defined as uh, the perfect manifestation of God's holy moral character in judgment against 
sin. Uh, I want us to understand this definition of wrath in a little bit of a broader way, though. I want us to rightly understand this um, this topic as it's presented as one of the major themes throughout redemptive history or biblical theology. And so in order to do that, we'll have to look at specific parts of God's wrath. And that's what I'll start with now. I want to start with what is the basis for God's wrath? What's the basis of God's wrath? Well, I would say the basis of God's wrath, according to the scriptures, is God's holiness. I would argue that the basis of God's wrath is God's holiness. That's where we must begin if we are to understand God's wrath. We know from the scriptures that God is majestic in his holiness, that he is set apart, that he's distinct from all other things. We know that God is holy by his very nature, right? Unlike our holiness, God's holiness is not derived, but God is holy, There's only one true and living God, and he is distinct in every single way. We uh, bear his image only, though, like a mirror bears our image. A mirror can bear our image, but the mirror does not actually possess any of the qualities of a human being. In the same way, we bear God's image without actually possessing any divine qualities. Uh, For example, you take the love of God, right? God doesn't simply love more than we do. His love is simply not greater than our love is. His love transcends our love completely. His love is actually distinct from our love. Our love is like his love, but it is not his love. The love uh, we're talking about is not simply quantitatively different, larger. Uh, God's love is qualitatively different different. So God is not just morally holy. He is, excuse the big word, ontologically holy, meaning his reality is actually a different reality. There are two realities, right? All things that God has made and God himself. Uh, He is in a category all on his own, especially in his holiness. So the seraphim can testify in Isaiah 6, 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, so you may ask though, what does God's holiness have to do with God's wrath? Well, if we rightly understand God's majestic holiness, his sole position as the only worthy object of our worship and obedience, then we'll see that wrath is the necessary response to irreverence or disobedience. Allow me to attempt an illustration. Uh, If your children break something of value in your home, we're prone to get angry with them. Okay, maybe not us, right? But the less sanctified parents, I'm sure, are prone to be angry with them. Being sanctified as we are, we are not, uh, not less likely or more likely, I'm sure, to respond with great patience with our children when they break something material and of value. We'll say something eventually to the lines of, you know, it's just stuff. It's just a thing. It's a material object, and your relationship with me is far more important than that silly thing. But just picture, if you would, the foolishness of taking, to your, child, taking your child to the Louvre in Paris. 
maybe you want to expose them to the finer things of life and so you decide to do that. You take your child to the Louvre and you lose track of them because you're in all of all the things and the paintings and the, the things. Uh, the next thing you know, uh, you look over and they are drawing a mustache, a big old fat mustache on the Mona Lisa. Not only that, now before you can get to them, they've actually ripped it off and they began stomping on it. Now you're angry, and rightly so. Because as bad as a broken vase might be in our home, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci is a unique and priceless piece of art. Now that would still just be a material object. As bad as that might be because the uniqueness of the Mona Lisa and the value of that object, it still hopefully would not be more valuable than your relationship with your child. But it leads us to the next thing we need to rightly understand if we're going to understand God's wrath. And that is the context of God's wrath. The context of God's wrath is the fact that God is a personal God who has entered into a covenant relationship with people. God is a personal God who has entered into a covenant relationship with people. That's the context of God's wrath. He's not just transcendent, high and lifted up. He's imminent. He's near his people. He's entered into relationship with each and every one. He's created them specifically for relationship with him. God is not a vase or a painting. He's not simply high and lifted up, completely separate from his creation. He is personal and he is present. He has freely and lovingly bound himself to his creation so that he relates to us in an intimate way. We are made to glorify him. We are made to enjoy him forever. Wrath must be understood in the context of that relationship. Wrath is simply not anger and someone breaking a vase or even a priceless piece of art. Wrath ultimately is covenantal. Meaning that it occurs, wrath occurs within the context of a personal covenantal relationship. So if we return to our illustration, we would likely experience some anger toward our children for their carelessness if they destroy a piece of property that was important to us. But it would be far more challenging for us to respond to a child who is purposely lying about us who is purposely spreading lies about our character, accusing us of heinous acts of neglect, that we were an uncaring or unloving parent. See, that's personal. What if our children hit us? Right? And I'm not referring to just our younger children who may lash out at times, but our older children violently striking us. That's not simply a broken piece of property. That is extremely personal. What if our children actually attach themselves to other adults and say, I love them far more than I love you. In fact, I hate you. You are a horrible parent. But this guy, I love him and I wish he were my father. And now we're really getting closer to the heart of what our transgression against the Lord actually are. See, friends, it's not simply the breaking of a vase or the destroying of a painting, but it is actually the destruction of an invaluable relationship. And as hard as this is to understand, we need to understand this. 
And not only do we see the basis of God's wrath being his holiness, the context of God's wrath being in this personal relationship, but I want you to also understand something very important. The source of God's wrath is actually his love. The source of God's wrath is his love. Wrath doesn't stand in contradiction or contrast to love. Wrath actually stems from God's love. It's an expression of God's holy love, right? If, if I love my relationship with my child, I will hate what degrades or destroys that relationship. And, and let's be honest, friends, even in the illustration we used earlier, who in here, who listening to this has not experienced some type of similar uh, difficulty in one relationship or another? Maybe it's not a child. Maybe it's a it's a parent or a friend. To, to say that I love them without hating what tears us apart is ludicrous. It's nonsensical. Listen, our, our love for life compels us to hate death. Our love for peace compels us to hate war. My love for my wife, Amy, compels me to hate what hurts her or threatens our relationship. Just as my love for God compels me to hate the sin that dishonors him. We can't love something while also loving the thing that harms and diminishes that thing. And Nelson's Bible Dictionary explains it like this. If God is not a God of wrath, his love is no more than frail, worthless sentimentality. That's how interconnected God's wrath is to his love. It's his source. That's how often we present God. But real love doesn't oppose wrath. It actually requires it. Next, we see the cause of God's wrath. The cause of God's wrath is God's justice. The cause of God's wrath is his justice. What is justice? Justice in its simplest form is the attainment of what's right, isn't it? But here's the catch. What is just and right, friends, listen to me, is not a human invention. We didn't invent the idea of something being just and right. What is just and right is actually grounded in the righteousness of God. So as Paul explains in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, he says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immorality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. In other words, Paul says, do what is right, that is, obey God, and your just reward will be eternal life. Do what is wrong, i.e. disobey God, and your just reward will be wrath and indignation. That is a just and right response to the transgression of God's law, which is the reflection of God's perfect and holy character. Listen, we struggle to appreciate the wrath of God because we no longer conceive of justice in these terms. Uh, in general, in our society, justice has been replaced by rehabilitation because responsibility has been replaced by a victim mentality. 
We see it happening continually in our culture. My family history made me do it. My chemical imbalance made me do it. My society made me do it. And of course, moral relativism, moving the bullseye, is, 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 gives us a, a moving target for justice anyway. But at the end of the day, friends, justice belongs to the Lord. God will, pray, will, will repay each one according to their works. There's no comfort in that, by the way. Paul's not writing that in Romans 2 for your comfort. He's actually writing that so you would feel that discomfort because he's moving on to Romans 3 where he goes on to tell us that there is none who obeys God, none who are righteous, no, not one, no one who seeks after God. Therefore, justice demands that each one of us receive the wrath and punishment of God that we so justly deserve. And this is not up for debate. This is not something that in our Christian theology we can just sweep under the carpet like it's a trivial matter. Or if it's something that might offend, we need to minimize it so we can proclaim the love of God in the gospel. The problem is remove the wrath of God and you have no gospel or at least no need for it. And so justice requires wrath. Wrath is not an impersonal process of natural consequences. Wrath is the expression of a holy love by a personal God. Wrath is not the irrational anger of some father who's just flown off the handle at his disobedient children. Instead, wrath is the execution of justice in keeping with the perfection of God's moral holiness. That's what wrath is. In fact, let's expound a little bit on our definition of wrath now as we look at point five. As we look at wrath as connected to all the attributes, let's, let's expound it a little bit more. Wrath, I believe, is the necessary, measured, holy indignation of a loving God towards sin and sinners. That, that I think, because of what we've already looked at, furthers our definition. This is what we're going to go with. Wrath is the necessary, measured, holy indignation of a loving God towards sin and sinners. And so let's, let me help this break this down into two really gospel categories, okay? Uh, something more concrete as we explain and expound on this. The first category is wrath is the just punishment of the wicked. Wrath is the just punishment of the wicked. It's described in terms of eternal life. That's the picture. You see it all the time throughout the scriptures, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, death without dying, life without grace and mercy. That's the picture, the consummation of God's wrath. It's really eternal torment and suffering that will forever stand in the sharpest possible contrast to the glorious eternal life of the people of God. And and listen, I don't preach that lightly. If this is true, this is terrifying. And friends, It's true. It's clearly taught in God's word. There is a wrath that is coming as uncomfortable as these things may make us. If we worship a God that does not express wrath towards sinners, then we've replaced the God of scriptures with a God of our own creation. It's crystal clear. We've replaced the God of scriptures with a God who's more like our jolly old uncle who loves everybody and would just give you the shirt off his back. He's super nice. He doesn't judge anyone. Friends, that's not the God of scripture. 
Uh, More than that, I think we're often tempted to think and feel that wrath is the ugly side of God. We come dangerously close sometimes to the heresy of cutting out the Old Testament God because he seems so wrathful and the real loving God is the God who is presented by all the nice things we read in Scripture. Everything else has to go. But listen, wrath, when understood in light of God's holiness in the context of a covenantal relationship and a love so holy that it hates all that threatens it, when understood as a just and evil response to sin, wrath actually reflects the beauty and majesty of our incredible God. No less than than love or mercy. Understanding God's wrath actually enhances our knowledge of God's righteousness, His holiness, and His goodness. It doesn't diminish it. We may struggle with God's wrath here and now, saints, but I assure you, when we pass into glory, His wrath, no less than His grace, will cause us to marvel at the glorious perfection that is our God. We're disturbed by thoughts of God's wrath now, Because we see in part, and quite frankly, the part we see is often man-centered and and ethically superficial. We don't value God, or we don't value God, nor do we value what God values. We don't appreciate the heinousness of sin. But church family, a a day is coming when we will. We will celebrate the wrath of God as the glorious expression of God's love and mercy um, and infinite faithfulness. The reality is we can't do that right now. We can't rightly conceive of God's love and mercy without a biblical understanding of God's wrath. We simply can't. God's wrath is the right response to a sin-stained world. Wrath could have been demonstrated in its consummative form in the Garden of Eden. You recognize that, don't you? But here we are. Do you realize this? Do you realize that that our presence, our ability to tune into this today, shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God postponed the final judgment and reserved his wrath? His righteous response to sin and rebellion, he postponed it in order to demonstrate his grace and mercy. So if we walk through the story of Scripture, we see types and shadows all over the place of God's consummated wrath in anticipation of the cross in the last day. Which brings us to our verse in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Part of our conversion is to serve the living and true God to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. God's son from heaven is the one God raised from the dead. Of course, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead presupposes that Jesus died on the cross, of course, and his atoning work that he accomplished on our behalf. And so as Paul wrote in Romans 4.25, Jesus, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This leads us to this second group. Uh, Wrath, yes, is the just punishment of the wicked. Absolutely. But friends, if you're in Christ, your offenses have been paid for. And listen, it was only because Jesus was delivered up for our offenses that Jesus is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. 
You need to hear that. It was only because he was delivered up for our offenses that Jesus is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. So Christian, we can't really understand the significance of Jesus being delivered up for us until we rightly understand the wrath of God. I want you to look with me in the book of Jeremiah chapter 25. In the Old Testament, one of the pictures of God's wrath is a cup. In Jeremiah 25, and if you want to turn there, you can simply just pause this video and turn there because I'm about to start reading right now. Jeremiah 25, 15 says this, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then Jeremiah is speaking and he says, Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations drink to whom the Lord has sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servant, his princes and all his people. And then he goes on to list nation after nation after nation. And listen, it's in that context that we need to hear the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, we went over this when we walked through the Gospel of John. Uh, in Matthew 26, 39, remember what Jesus says in the garden. He says, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, you realize that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. That's what he accomplished. Jesus received in himself all of the consequences for our sin. Uh, this is what Paul means when he writes that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. The just wrath of God for our consequences was actually taken by Christ on our behalf so that you and I wouldn't have to drink from that cup. This is not a case of love or mercy defeating wrath. No, at the cross, the beauty and majesty of all of God's attributes are demonstrated through the satisfaction of divine justice. Each and every one. Love and wrath demonstrated at the same glorious event. Mercy and justice, patience and righteousness, goodness and kindness. They were all exhibited in perfect harmony when Jesus Christ was delivered up for our offenses. At the cross, Jesus drank a cup for his people, but I want you to know this, church family. There are still wraths of cups, or, uh, cups of wrath, excuse me, coming. There are still cups of wrath coming. In fact, we read in Revelation 16 and Revelation 6 uh, about the cup of God's wrath. In fact, let's read Revelation 6, 12 through 17 right now. Look at this, what will happen in that day. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Listen, when Jesus came the first time, he came as the lamb who was to take away the sins of the world. And he drank the cup of God's wrath for God's people, for all those who would trust in him. But when Jesus returns, church family, he will return as the lamb with wrath. And he will bring the cup of God's wrath and make the nations drink every last drop. All who have rejected him will cry out, will not cry out for salvation. They'll not cry out for salvation. They'll cry out for the rocks and mountains that they might fall on them for it would be better than facing the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, if you're not in Christ, your only hope of not drinking from that cup is to trust in the one who already has. That's the hope, our only hope. The cup is coming. John explains it like this, God's wrath will come. The cup will be passed out. And John says in John 3, 36, he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those who trust in the Son drink from the cup of his eternal grace. Those who do not, his wrath still abides on them. Some heavy stuff. Friends, if you're not in Christ Jesus, if, if you don't know for sure that Jesus has drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf, then today is the day of salvation. Repent and be saved. But friends, I, for us, I would like to offer just a couple of points to application as we close. How do we apply a study of God's wrath? What does that mean for us as I live my day-to-day -day life um, how do I, I reconcile God's wrath with a propel, um, propelling me to live for him? Well, let's see this. Two things. First, rightly understanding God's wrath should help us better understand the heinousness of our sin and compel us to pursue holiness. Let me say that again. I know that's a, that's a wordy statement. But it's true. When we rightly understand God's wrath, it helps us really to understand uh, the heinousness, the putridness, the wickedness of our own sin. And it compels us to pursue, to run after holiness. My sin costs far more than I can appreciate. Uh, when I come to better understand God's wrath, I start to appreciate more and more the work of Christ on the cross. My individual sins added to the suffering of the Lord of glory. That's the reality. Yes, he has suffered for each and every one, past, present, and future. But as I live forward, I don't take that for granted. Each and every sin actually brought wrath on the Lord's glory. So when I begin to apprehend the wrath of God, I cannot continue in my sin as if there's no consequence. When I apprehend the cost of my sin, as I contemplate the wrath of God that was poured out on Christ, I will grow more and more appalled by my sin. It's the natural flow of emotion there. Natural flow of response. Second, and I believe the one, uh, is, this is closely related to the last one, but I think it's one we need to explore in our culture today. Rightly understanding God's wrath 
church should deeply, deeply humble us. When we rightly understand God's wrath, it should deeply humble us. The reality is, every one of you listening to this has lived on the brink of eternal wrath. That's where we, we are exiled. Each one of us at one time, as Paul has said, were children of God's wrath. That's who we were. But if we're in Christ, then Jesus was delivered up for us so that we might be delivered from that wrath to come. We brought nothing to our salvation but sin itself. We brought nothing to this whole exchange except for the very wrath that Christ took upon himself. That should humble us to the dust. As we sing in one of my favorite songs, All I Have is Christ, but as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place and bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. You can't sing that last part until you've contemplated the first part. I can't appreciate the fact that all I know now is grace until I grasp the fact that he bore the wrath reserved for me. Humility, friends, absolute humility. And listen, this is a whole nother sermon, but I want to give just one practical application uh, to Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. I want you to turn there if you can, and I want you to listen to those words in the context of this wrath being able to produce humility in us, in the context of what we just talked about, look at what Paul says in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Listen. I'm just going to speak for myself here, okay? You can uh, tag along if this applies to you, but I'm just going to speak for myself. There are few things harder in this life than overcoming evil with good. There are few things harder than offering forgiveness in the face of cruelty, in the face of those who have wronged me. But church family, when I consider the wrath of God and what Christ has bore on my behalf, I cannot do otherwise. Here's the reality. The reason Paul says give place to wrath is that we can forgive because perfect justice is worked out by God. It's what we desire for those who have wronged us that they would get what they justly deserve. In fact, what gets under our skin more than seeing those who have wronged us in some way apparently get off scot-free? You want to be tested on your ability to really forgive someone, be in that type of relationship, and see someone prosper in their wrongdoing. But here's where you apply forgiveness to that solution, that situation. The reality is is that person is going to receive the cup of God's wrath. That's sufficient, friends. Give place to God's wrath. They don't need your wrath. And here's the flip side of it. Maybe they won't receive God's wrath in the end. Praise be to God if they don't, because that 
means that Jesus took it on the cross. Either way, is that not sufficient for you? Listen, I struggle with this as well, but our lack of forgiveness really reveals that we don't understand the wrath of God that was bore by Christ for us on the cross. God's justice is perfect. Every person you encounter who has either had their, is someone who has either had their wrath taken by Christ or someone who will receive God's wrath in the end. Either way, Perfect justice has been, will be meted out. We can forgive in the context of that truth, of that reality. All right? Okay, I started with a quote from George Hubert. I will close with a quote from another George, George Whitfield. He says, although believers by nature are far from God and children of wrath, even as others... Yet it is amazing to think how nigh they are brought to him again by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, would you help us to rightly understand your wrath? Would you help us to rightly understand it in the context of your holiness, context of your covenantal relationship with your people, In the context of your holy love, Father, your justice, so that we might grow in our understanding of what Christ actually did for us on the cross. That we, who were once your enemies, are now seated at your table. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you. Help us now to live in humility. Help us now to appreciate the heinousness of our sin And help us now to pursue holiness. All because we have a biblical understanding of your wrath. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church family, the charge is to you. Um, First off, the charge is, are you giving place for God's wrath in your relationships with people? Um, He is just. Everyone you come in contact with in every situation is someone who will either experience the wrath of God or will either experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either way, God is just and he's the justifier. So forgive. Don't hold grudges in those relationships. Don't give your own wrath. God doesn't need your wrath. His wrath is sufficient. So forgive. Show Christ. Do good. Overcome evil with good. But for those who may not know the Lord Jesus, the question's very clear. Are you going to drink the cup of God's wrath? Because there's a cup full of his wrath that is awaiting you if you have not given your life to Christ. I don't mean that to scare you, and yet in a way it's terrifying. I mean that to compel you to see the beauty of what Jesus Christ did on behalf of sinners in taking the wrath of God upon himself, though he was perfect, though he did not deserve it, he took it in your stead. My prayer is that you'd repent and receive the free gift of grace that Christ has purchased on behalf of you this morning by calling out to him, asking him to have mercy upon you, repenting of your sins, and trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Whatever the Lord has called you or placed on your heart to do, however you've been able to apply this sermon, we'd love to hear from you. 
It's always an encouragement to hear from our church family on Sundays or Mondays or whenever. And so please, um, let's bear each other's burdens together. Let's share what the Lord has revealed to us about his word. Let's be an encouragement to one another. I love you, church family. I miss you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. God bless.